0: Blog Talk Radio. <laughs>
1: Welcome to Trendlebed Tales, the podcast about Laura Ingalls Wilder, historic foodways, one-room schools, and other social history. This is Sarah Utah, the host and creator of Trendlebed Tales. Find us around the web under Trendlebed Tales and on your favorite social media platform. If you listen or just have an account on iTunes, please leave positive feedback because it helps people find the show. <clears throat> this is episode... This is episode, as I am flipping windows to find it. This is episode 111 uh, with Laura Giannarelli, and I'm going to double-check with her how to pronounce her name, Uh, and the National Library Service. She's an actress who's read books for the National Library Service, which provides materials for people with temporary or permanent low vision blindness or a physical disability that prevents reading. Uh, there's a national network of cooperating libraries and offers books in multiple formats. Now, the reason that I am uh, interviewing Mrs. Or Ms. Giavelli today is because she has read for them both The Little House Books and Pioneer Girl. Join me as we learn about this important system, how she got interested in Laura, and how she went about this entire project. But before we get to her, first, we have a little house housekeeping. And with that, it's a reminder that uh, if you want to be a part of the show, you can call in at 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5253. Or toll-free, 1-877-633-9389. That's toll-free, 1-877-633-9389. Or you can chat while we stream live episodes. And as far as upcoming events, we still do not know what are the upcoming events this year with everything going on, but uh, be sure to watch the podcast. I'm going to be trying to really ramp up the number of episodes, so look for more posts soon and often. And with that, I am going to say we're done with housekeeping And I think this is Laura herself. Am I right? Is this Laura?
2: Yes, this is she. Hi. Good morning. Yay.
1: I always get nervous if people are going to actually get called in or not cuz the technology oh, is not always my friend.
2: Yes. Well, yes. You. Technology can be very challenging, but uh this seems to be working just fine this morning.
1: Well, that is always good to hear. Now, uh, before we get going, will you pronounce your last name correctly? Gianarelli.
2: Giannarelli. Giannarelli. Although I will say that my sister pronounce it, pronounces it Giannarelli, so I answer to pretty much anything, but Laura Gennarelli. In Italian, which is what my heritage is, you say Giannarelli, but I just answer to Gennarelli.
1: <laughs> well, that is... A good way to think about it. I, I always blame the Germans for Utah because. They'll
2: <laughs> be, oh yeah, that's Uthof. Utah. It would be Uthof of yeah. Deutsch, yeah. Well, so what can I tell uh, you today?
1: All right. Well, we are most interested in the work you have been doing for uh, the National Library Service. Now, before we get too far in there, I just want to take a couple minutes here and remind people that there is a long tradition of recording Laura's book. Uh, the probably most famous early version, and it was basically the radio version of the Hallmark Hall of Fame, did a adaption of The Long Winter, which is also the earliest reference I have had of people saying Elmanzo, Elmanzo. Uh, she did other work with groups to help people to read. She uh, had signed off very quickly for the books they had that projected on ceilings for people in uh, hospital beds. Uh, there was a recording of Little House in the Big Woods by Julie Harris on four records, which is um, actually one of my favorite versions. The Newbery Honor Books were recorded Uh, by um, someone in a one record set and uh, most recently Cherry Jones who uh, is a Broadway actress came out with the full line that Harper Collins recorded and has available but I was very recently when I was still at work (laughs) before I got sent home had a um, I had found a news article about Laura here and her work with the uh, um, National Library Service. So, uh, Laura, would you start out telling us a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure, sure. Um, I'm an Air Force brat. I was born in Washington, D.C., many years ago. And my dad was in the Air Force, and so we traveled around a lot. I lived in Illinois, I lived in Ohio. We lived in Japan for three years when I was a little girl, Uh, in Germany for four years, where I was lucky enough to travel all over Europe with my mother, dad, and my little sister. And we moved back to the D.C. area in 1972, and I've lived here ever since. I graduated high school in Prince George's County from Suitland High School. I went to Catholic University of America, and I was a double major with French and Drama, And just after I got out of college, I was working in the box office at a local summer theater, only theater, and I was working in the box office, and one of the actors who was in one of the shows had been a grad student when I was undergrad, and he came to set up tickets for his mom to come see the show, and he said, you know, Laura, you have a lovely voice. You should apply to work where I worked while I was in grad school, and I said, where is that? And he told me it was the National Library Service for the Blind at the Library of Congress, and he gave me the phone number, and I called, and I did an audition. I went in and did a live audition. Uh, read, I read from Mrs. Miniver, and uh, I waited many, many weeks, and finally they got back to me and said I passed the audition. And I started work at the National Library Service, in 1979, so I will have worked there this coming July for 41 years. So I kind of liked the job, so I stayed there.
1: <laughs> well, that is always really good to find the, where you belong.
2: Oh, yes. It's, it's, been, it's been really a joy to work at NLS for many, many years, to do work that I love um, in, my, in my sort of other life, I'm a professional actor. I work with a theater company called the Washington Stage Guild in Washington, D.C., and I work at other theaters as an actor and a director, but when I'm not on stage or acting, directing at another theater, I'm at the NLS studio narrating books, and I don't just narrate. I also engineer the recordings, which is what we call monitoring, where someone else is reading the book, and I have a second copy of the book, and I'm stopping them when they make a mistake or when I hear a noise or when there's some kind of problem. And then I also review books, which is where we listen to the finished recording and mark down any stuff that the narrator monitor missed so that the books are as correct as possible when they go out to the patrons to listen to.
1: So uh, why don't you tell any of our listeners, I'm assuming most people who are listening is because they're Laura fans, what exactly is the
2: National Library Service? The National Library Service for the Blind is a free library program that provides both Braille and recorded material to people who can't see regular print or handle print materials. We recently changed our name to the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled to better cover that uh, that. that Uh, category span, because it isn't just people who are blind. Someone who has a physical disability where they're unable to, for example, hold a print book and turn the pages is eligible for the program. And also if people have a reading disability, if they're dyslexic and they just can't read, print easily, they can uh, be eligible for the program. It started by an act of Congress in 1931, to serve blind adults. It was expanded in 1952 to include children, in 1962 to provide music materials, and then in 1966 it was expanded to allow people with physical disabilities um, or dyslexia to participate in the program. And you apply, you can go to loc.gov NLS and find out all about the program. Um, you can also access the application form there, or you can call your uh, local library. If you call one eight 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 nls read or one 657 7323 you can find out about um, applying for the program. And what you do is you fill out a form, and then it has to be certified, And certifying authorities would be a doctor, um, an ophthalmologist, an optometrist, a therapist, hospital staff, um, you know, someone in authority to certify that indeed you cannot read standard print material um, successfully and so you should qualify for the program. And once you are accepted into the program, you can get reading materials, either Braille for those people who read Braille, or audio materials, um, free. It's sent through the mail, free matter for the blind and uh, print disabled. Um, just the same way that you or I would borrow a book from our public library, a print book, the people who are eligible to receive National Library Service Services, Um, can get their audio books or Braille books through the mail. It comes in a plastic container addressed to you, and then when you're finished listening to it or reading it, you turn the card over and it has the NLS address on it, and you put it in your mailbox and it goes back to the library. So you don't have to leave your home. You choose the books that you want uh, with your librarian um, or with a catalog that you can get. And there's also a wonderful program the last number of years called BARD, which is a Braille and audio download system where you can download books that are part of the NLS collection to your personal listening device so that you don't have to get cartridges to listen from the library. But if you don't, you know, if, uh, for example, an older adult isn't particularly computer savvy, the library has up-to-date digital talking book machines that you can, again, receive free at, at no cost to you. They send you the machine, and then you get the cartridges to listen to whatever books you would like to listen to.
1: Well, that just sounds like a great program, and I'm uh, glad that besides talking about the law, that we get a chance to tell people about that. If anybody knows someone who is um, is sight impaired or has a problem reading that you think qualifies for this, be sure to ask them if they know about the program because I have discovered that there are lots of people who do not always realize all the programs that are already in place to help them.
2: Absolutely. absolutely. I think it's one of the best programs that the federal government does, is the National Library Service. I think it's a a wonderful, wonderful program. And over the 40 years that I've worked there, I get letters, you know, not every week, but fairly frequently I'll get a letter from a patron about how much they've enjoyed a particular book and mostly how much the program means to them, to be able to listen to books and uh, be able to read even though they can't. See or turn the pages of a book.
1: Yes, that's something that I I just don't know. I, that would be just a horrible thing to not be able to read, and I'm so glad that there is this service that's been helping
2: people do that for mm-hmm. a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Now, my my I aunt, my father's sister, was blind, and she was a, a participant in the NLS program. And when I went to visit her in San Diego, she had a stack of about ten different books in their little plastic cartridges that she was reading, and she used to read like a dozen books a month. Hmm. And, of course, that's hours and hours and hours of listening, but she just devoured books because she had always been an avid reader.
1: Okay, well, let's switch a little bit over to Laura. Uh, did you like Laura's books when you were little?
2: Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I loved them. I mean, after all, she had my name. I mean, <laughs> when I was like nine years old and I read Little House in the Big Woods and there was this girl who had my name, I was I was enthralled. I was enthralled. I had always loved um, history and, you know, quote, old-timey things. And I have to say I don't recall how I first got the books, whether my parents gave them to me as a gift or whether I got them out of the library.
0: But I remember
2: just devouring them and adoring them and reading them over and over and over. Um, Just loved them. And, in fact, the story of how I got to narrate them is that the studio director at the time, a lovely woman named Pat Obrimski, came down from collection development with an armload of books, and said, Laura, would you be interested in narrating? And before she had finished the sentence, I had snatched the books out of her hand and said, yes, please, I would love to, because I just loved them so much. And the the opportunity to narrate the whole series from uh, Little House in the Big Woods all the way through... Well, I read through These Happy Golden Years, and then I also read The First Four Years, which is the sort of adjunct book uh, that is the the more stark version of the same period of time, basically, that These Happy Golden Years covers. Um, but yes, mm-hmm. I, I read them avidly as a child, and I have to say that when I, for, when I started reading the first one, And I didn't read Little House in the Big Woods until later. The first one that we read was Little House on the Prairie, which is book two. Mm -hmm. Um, That was the first book that I narrated. And when I started, you know, picked it up to start reading it, I was a little trepidatious. And I thought, oh, please let this be as good as I remember it. Because I hadn't read them since I was a child. And when I narrated them, it was in the 80s. And I was, what, about 30? And... You know, I was like, I hope they're, they're as good as I remember, and and of course they were. They're they're just wonderful, wonderful stories.
1: And she so, has such beautiful description.
2: Yes. And. Well, yes. At which you know, having read a, a couple of the biographies about Laura, I think it's not an accident that she had such a gift for description because she spent much of her youth describing the world to her blind sister, Mary. And
1: th- yeah, She was and Mary's
2: Mary. eyes.
0: And, and that's, that's also, your, and
2: I think, one of the reasons why the series is so very popular with NLS patrons. I mean, I have to say, over the years, I've gotten more letters about the Little House books than about any other books that I've narrated, um, because I think a lot of our blind patrons identify with the stories in the books because of Laura's close connection with her sister and how she helped Mary see.
1: Yeah, and I mean, um, Mary... I think should be in a way inspirational to a a lot of people, but um, not just what goes on exactly in the book, but, um, you know, when Mary comes back from the School for the Blind, how much more confident she is. And I think that's something that Schools for the Blind really help impart, that feeling of of independence and having a way to um, not feel as helpless.
2: Yeah. And, and well, one I, of I the things I love about the stories too is how forward-thinking Laura's parents were. I mean, what an unusual family they were! That that Mister and Missus Ingalls sent Mary at at no little cost to themselves financially to the school for the blind, so that she could, you know. Achieve as much as she could in spite of her disability was pretty extraordinary. Yes. For the time.
1: Yes, especially because, you know, South Dakota, well, Dakota Territory didn't have their own school yet. Right. So
2: she had to go far away.
1: Yeah. Yes. I I think it would be incredibly hard to send your child away like that, but I really Mm -hmm. think that those residential blind schools um, do more than you could ever do keeping the child at home.
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: All right. Well, what did you like best about the books? What what really stands out in your memory from having read them?
2: Well, from having read them as a child or narrated them as an adult or both?
1: Well, probably both, because I find it hard to separate it out unless, uh-huh, unless you have uh-huh. a good separation.
2: <laughs> well, I think as a child, what I appreciated most was Laura's adventurous, um, not to say rebellious nature, that she was not afraid and she tried things and she pushed the boundaries because as a child i i'm the older child my my sister is the baby there're only the two of us but but she was the baby and i was the big sister and i was i was the good girl i was the girl who if my mother said no you may not do that i was like oh okay whereas if my if she told my sister no you may not do that my sister would say why why can't i and laura was much more like that laura was much more the <laughs> The boundary tester, and I just loved that about her, and and it sort of inspired me to try to be more adventurous when I was a kid. Um, I also loved the closeness between the sisters, that even though they they bickered and uh, there was sometimes tension between them, how much they loved each other. Because when I traveled as a kid, when we, for instance, when we moved from. District Heights, Maryland, to Wiesbaden, Germany, you know, for several months, my sister was my best friend. I mean, I didn't know kids at school yet, but my sister was my playmate and my friend. And I, I really identified with that familial closeness that the family has in the books, how much love there is in the family. And that, that really um, spoke to me as a kid. As an adult narrating the books, the most fun is how vivid the writing is and how vivid the characters are and how much fun it was to get to be Pa and Ma and Nellie Olson, and, you know, to be everybody and to sort of bring the book to life as I heard it in my mind.
1: All right, well, let's talk a little bit. About actually doing the reading, uh, did mm-hmm. you listen to any of the previous recordings first? Um,
2: of course the- I did not I did okay. not i i didn't I didn't listen to any others. I think partly because I didn't want to imitate anybody and and partly because, having loved them so much as a kid, I sort of the those narrations were kind of inside me raring to get out. I, I didn't need to be like, hmm, how do I narrate these? It was like they were ready. They were ready. The challenging part was the research because I narrated these books back in the 1980s before um, the Internet. And of course the books are full of songs. And the National Library Service the the general rule is that we cannot sing any song in a text that we're narrating aloud. Um, but because music was such an integral part of the Little House books and the Little House family, and because the Little House songbook already existed that had the majority of the songs in it, I, um, I sort of borrowed a, book, uh, a page out of, laura's um feisty nature and i went to the powers that be at the library and said please may i sing the songs and they said well okay but if you sing one you have to sing them all and some of the songs were not in the songbook the songbook had maybe 75 percent of the songs in them you know in it with the sheet music um... So I called South Dakota, and I called, I think, Missouri as well, and I also had a source downtown in the music department at the Library of Congress. And for months I did research to ferret out the sheet music for all of the obscure songs so that we would be able to sing the correct melody. And I am not a trained singer. I can sort of carry a tune in a bucket, but I'm not a great singer. But there was someone in the music department who played piano, and at the time we had a piano tucked away in a corner at the National Library Service. And so he came down, and with a little cassette player, I taped him playing the music to all the songs. And then whenever I would go in the recording studio to uh, record a chapter that one of the ones I sort of remember a phrase of is, I'm Captain Jinx of the Horse Marines, I feed my horse on corn and beans, da 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 and then it goes on. Um, and when I recorded those songs, I would have a monitor, an engineer, who actually could do more than just carry a tune in a bucket. And they would coach me through, and we. Would, she'd say, no, no, you were flat on that note. Let's go back and do that again. And we would record them until we got them right, um, which was, you know, very time intensive.
1: But well, it was very, very rewarding. That is very impressive. I can't say that that sounds a lot better than the versions that I have heard. <laughs> um i'm I'm so glad you did
2: that because you are right. The songs are integral to the the, the story oh absolutely I mean, that, that absolutely. I mean more and more and more, I mean, particularly in these happy golden years when that when when Laura and Manley go to the singing school, um I mean there's song after song after song, and to to just say the words would have been for me a letdown, and so luckily um the the people in production control and the head of the library service said yes okay in this one case you can sing all the songs
1: well now I'm even more upset I can I don't qualify to listen to it.
2: <laughs> that sounds
1: incredible. well there, okay. it
2: was well, it was great it was great fun to do it was great fun to do
1: well um Let me ask you a couple questions. Now, the reason, and I sent you a list of questions before, and you may have thought these sounded kind of weird. But having listened to all these versions, I want to know, and and since I can't listen to the recording myself, I want to know uh, how you're pronouncing a couple things. Because as I listen to other books on tape, I uh, sometimes have to spend the entire book talking back to the narrator, the recorded narrator, telling them that they pronounced words wrong.
2: Yes, well, that's one of the things we try to do at NLS is we, we're we very rigorous about research because we feel that while the listener of a commercial audio book, if they hate what the narrator is doing, they can just, you know, toss the book back and read it in print. But for our patrons, our recording is often their only access to the material. So we're very uh we're very careful to do the research to look up words in the dictionary and do our very best to pronounce things correctly and that's one of the reasons that the books are reviewed we do both a hundred percent review and then a thirty percent review checking those hundred percent corrections and then it goes to our quality assurance department where it gets checked again before it gets included in the collection so hopefully we don't mispronounce things well, But what, that, what that are me. you curious about?
1: Okay. Well, the first one is, and I don't want to say the word to you because then you would hear, hear how I pronounce it, but uh, how do you say Laura's husband's name?
2: I pronounced it Almanzo because his yes. nickname growing up was Manly. Yes. Yes, that is so right. So when people say Almanzo, I'm like, but then why did his brothers call him Manny? Yeah, and you know, I, I also, I also, I have to say that particularly as I got closer to puberty, I thought it was really, really romantic that in real life, you know, when I read books about Laura Ingalls Wilder, that her name for her husband was Manly, which is kind of sexy, actually.
1: <laughs> yes, it really kind of is. I um, I'm so glad because we. That's something a big Laura Addy people get really upset about because the TV show says Almanzo, of course. And it Mm. took us a long time, but we finally even have Dean Butler convinced to say Almanzo when he's talking about the real guy. So I am very stoked that you have that right
2: Oh, absolutely. Well, that was one of the things I researched because, you know, one of the things we try really hard for at NLS is – pronouncing proper names correctly, and of course, he was a real person, so I was like, well, how the heck did he say his name? And if I'm not mistaken, you know, it was a long time ago, but I think before I started recording them, when I was talking to the folks in South Dakota, I asked at the, um, uh, the what is the name of the organization, the, the his- Historical Society
1: the Memorial Society,
2: yeah. yeah. the Memorial Society. I asked how the name was said, and I think whoever I spoke with told me the story of, well, she called him Manly, so I think it's Almanzo, and so that's what mm-hmm. I did. Well, yeah, that is I a did. great thing. Now, this next
1: question is because of the Cherry Jones recording, because mm-hmm. I spent – the entire book Farmer Boy correcting her because I had mm-hmm. not realized how much this b- word is in this book because it just bugged me mm-hmm. so it is and again not saying the word to throw you off but the uh, upper level of a barn so M-O-W
2: right well the one book that I did not narrate was Farmer Boy because it's <sighs> told in the first person by a boy Yes. Yeah. So did else? I didn't get, to, because one of the things we do at NLS is the studio directors, there are a number of studios that feed into the NLS program, and the studio directors assign the books and, so to speak, cast them, kind of the way a theater director would cast a play. And if a book is told in the first person, that is with the eye, or if, it's, if the main character in the whole story is about, a girl like most of the little house books then a female narrator is assigned to read it but farmer boy is all about almanzo so i did not narrate that book and i have to say i don't know what the narrator who did said but i if it came up in the other books at all in you know in looking back on mm-hmm. on almanzo's childhood or whatever i hope i said hey mao but that may have been the case where I didn't know any better and I said "Hey Mo," but I, I know now that it's a "Hey Mal."
1: Well, that is very good. Yes, that is it. It is Mal, and the and Sherry Jones always says "Mo," and she's up in the <laughs> "Hey Mo," and I'm like, "No, no, it's stop, very bad stop!" When driving a car <laughs> listen to that one because I'm always yelling at her. It all right. Yeah. But. Uh, and it isn't just one, it, it reminds me, the, the worst one I ever listened to was a version of Anne of Avonlea, and apparently uh-huh. whoever they had reading it did not know Avonlea, so she called it Avonlea. And oh, dear. Oh, dear. The yes.
2: whole book. Yes. Well, so. you know, we, we think we know. We used to have a sign-up in our recording studio in great big letters printed on an old dot matrix printer that said, but that's the way I've always said it,
0: <laughs>
2: and that doesn't make it right. <laughs> you know, the the way you guess it, and, well, I, I thought it was said that way. And uh, when I started working at NLS, I was fresh out of college at Catholic University, and, you know, I had my degree, and I thought I was a pretty smart girl. And after working at NLS for about six months, I was like, I'm not sure I even know how to pronounce my own name right, because <laughs> so many things I would have to, the the monitor would say, have you looked that up? And we would look it up and it would be like, no, I've been saying that wrong <laughs> all my life. And, yeah, so I've learned the hard way that you, you really have to look up words that you're not 100% sure you're correct.
1: About. Well that is just great to hear. I I am (laughs) so glad that they work on that kind of stuff because Oh absolutely
2: absolutely
1: so frustrating (laughs) as a listener.
2: So you got two for two. That's great. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Uh
1: now the other book you got to read, and this is something that I just thought was really, really cool that you guys had done is you've actually read uh, Pioneer Girl that the South Dakota State Historical Society put out.
2: Oh, yes, I have.
1: Um, So uh, how did that come about? Was it because you'd read the other Laura books?
2: I read the other Laura books and I was, at the time, I was narrating in two studios. Now I only narrate at NLS, but up until a few years ago, I also narrated at Potomac Talking Books that um, used to be in Bethesda, and I think they're in Rockville now, Maryland. Um, but I was in that studio, and I was working on a book, and I walked past the, uh, the bookshelf that has, you know, books that are waiting to be narrated, and I saw Pioneer Girl. And I went to the studio director there, and I said, you know, I narrated all the Laura books. I would love to narrate this. And so, even though it had initially been assigned to another narrator, they switched, and they let me narrate it. And it was a heck of a lot of work because it is it's not you know it's a historical read. it's a it's an annotated um, book that has all of the I don't know what you'd call them the the source material for the Little House book. So it has Laura's initial manuscripts. It has the the version of her life story that she initially wrote hoping that it might be an adult book. Um, It has uh, sort of stories that she wrote that are like the real story of what happened in her life as opposed to the you know, fictionalized, turned into a children's book story that she wrote ultimately in the little house books. So, for instance, during the long winter, which I don't know about you, but I remember quite vividly um, (laughs) when they're stuck in the house by themselves for the whole horrible winter of snowstorm after snowstorm and twisting hay into, into little sticks to keep the fire going. Um, in real life, they were sort of quarantined, if you will, stuck in the house with a young couple who had a baby. They had, like, borders. And so it wasn't just Laura and her family and Ma and Pa. It was this other couple and their baby. And apparently. <laughs> they were kind of whiny and not, they didn't all get along very well, um, but when Laura fictionalized the story, she just sort of got rid of that other couple to keep the story cleaner for a young adult audience.
1: Yes. So there's all kinds of
2: stuff like that. There's um, And there's amazing photographs in the book, too, of all of the, I mean, there's like pictures of the like gigantic snowdrifts, feet and feet of snow. There's one photograph I remember of the men digging out the railroad track to try to, you know, open the railroad track so that supplies could be brought in. And uh, if I remember correctly, um, because I read it a few years ago, um, they, like, spent days, Digging out, and they were like halfway there, and you know they'd have to go home and 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 get back inside at night. And a huge snowstorm came, and the winds howled, and all their work was covered up again by snowdrifts. So it was frustrating. Um, but the book is is really fascinating for anyone who is a, a true Laura fan. I highly recommend it. It's a it's a great book, but it is. It is not a pleasure read, so to speak. It's, a, it's a, almost like a reference book, almost.
1: Well, um, and if, if anybody doesn't know this, which I think probably anybody listening to this show does, but if you don't, you can still buy copies from any of the Laura Home sites and also from, directly from the South Dakota State Historical Society Press. And there is another episode of this show, featuring Nancy Koppel, who one of the things she talks about is this book. So look for that if you haven't heard it yet. Okay, now um, one thing about Pioneer Girl, as it was produced, mm-hmm. and uh, I have kind of a long history with it, because I started reading the books about the time they promised that the book would come out in 1984, <laughs> and, yes. and it didn't. <laughs> And then it was going to come out later, and it didn't. And then it was going to come out later, and it didn't. So I've had a long, long time waiting for, for Pioneer Girl to come out. But as it finally came out, it's it's a fairly complex book. How they yes. did the annotations, um, mm-hmm. and the actual design of it, I mean, is complex. Mm-hmm. Did that give you any trouble in the reading?
2: Oh, my, yes. I mean, we we spent days trying to figure out how best to translate it into audio because I, I was taught way back when I started as a narrator that really when you are narrating an audio book, you're really a translator and you're translating print material into an audio format. And so you have to look at the way the material is organized on the page and figure out, okay, how does it make sense for my ear? And, for instance, it's got tons of footnotes, and the footnotes are very long. So if I were to read a sentence, and then there's that little, you know, that little superscript or subscript one that says, okay, that's footnote one, if I were to go and read footnote one right in that moment, if it's a page and a half long, by the time I say end of footnote and go back to the text, You've forgotten what I was talking about. So what we did is we would read sentence, 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 footnote one, sentence, 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 footnote two, and then at the end of each section I would say footnotes for section one, and then I would read all the footnotes in their entirety at that point before going on to the next section of the book and the the digital books the way we record them now at NLS for the blind listener they are navigable so there are there are navigation points put into the uh digital recording so that if you're for instance reading pioneer girl and you've heard me say you know blah 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 footnote 1 blah 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 footnote 2 if we get to the end of the section and I say footnotes for section one, if you don't want to listen to those, you can press a button on your player and go right to section two and hop over all those footnotes and not listen to them if you don't want to. And so that's well, that how we handle cool. that. That's how we handle yeah. that. because, And it's kind of equivalent to the way that we cited people read a print book because i don't know about you but when i'm reading a book i'll notice that there's a footnote but i don't always go read the footnote you know if well, i'm curious about you know if it has some you know let's say if it has hey mao, and i'm like what the heck is a haymow hey footnote one well maybe i'll go read that footnote because i don't know what a hey mao is and i want to know but if i'm caught up in the story and I don't care so much about that. I just keep reading. So yeah. by putting the annotated notes at the end of each section, it allows the talking book listener the, the equivalent of the cited, list, the cited reader's experience to be able to skip them if they want or listen to them if they, if they care to.
1: Well, that sounds very helpful. And if you have not read Pioneer Girl, uh, it really is quite annotation heavy, quite long annotation. And, you know, I I know people, even scholarly people, who go through and read the whole book once and then go back and and read it with the footnotes just because Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. By the time you get to the end of the footnote to remember where you were in the text, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's like where, what are we talking about? What what was what was she saying? Yeah.
1: And yeah. the the text itself is kind of confusing both because of how it was written and how it was edited because um it was it, it was sort of a stream of consciousness mm-hmm. writing. They she mm-hmm. really hadn't um built it into um a formal uh, a formal shape like like she did with the little house books it's sort of Right,
2: right. I mean these like are exam- these are preliminary they're preliminary um texts the the fictional parts um you know the when they have uh this or that manuscript of Laura's that they put in Pioneer Girl the the texts that eventually became the little house books they're not in that form yet, so they they aren't as sophisticated.
1: Well, since you did Pioneer Girl, uh, the South Dakota State Historical Society, which has been around for a really long time, I don't remember when they started publishing books, but it's been a long time, they have sold more copies of Pioneer Girl as a single book than they have sold of every
2: other book they have ever printed. Wow. So
1: to to jump on that bandwagon, they decided the next thing they were going to do was to produce a trilogy of books about Pioneer Girl. And uh, the first one is out. Um, they're a little behind schedule on the second one. I'm not entirely sure if they're going to get it finished. But the plan is that they're going to do a trilogy. And the first one out is Pioneer Girl Perspectives, which is a series of essays um, by people that came and had a conference in, um, in see that one was in, in Brookings
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, no it wasn't Brookings it was Sioux Falls, it was Sioux Falls. Uh, and uh, I was wondering is there any further idea of going on with the trilogy or do you think Pioneer Girls probably as far as they're going to go
2: Um, That is a question that I could ask collection development because the collection development section at NLS is responsible for choosing the books that will be recorded and included in the collection. Um, And it's really up to them. They have a whole set of criteria that they use to choose books for the collection because of course, the National Library Service for the Blind can't um, record every book that's published every year in America. I mean the the NLS catalog has about two hundred seven or so thousand talking books, but that's only a fraction of the books that are that are published in America. And so collection development has to um, determine, how best, just like any librarian, how best to balance the collection. What do we need more of? What do we already have enough of? Um, I know that a book has to get a certain number of positive reviews before it's eligible to be included in the collection. And then there are also most states, I don't know if South Dakota does, but most states have a volunteer recording service attached to their state library for the blind and often books that are published in that state about that state will be recorded by the volunteer studio and made available to the national collection so for instance a a book um, I don't know about the rivers of Idaho would get recorded by the Idaho State Library, and then it would be uh, sort of cataloged and included so that if somebody in Tennessee wanted to read a, the book about the Iowa, uh, Idaho rivers, they could request it and it would get sent to them. But I I really don't know. I can ask Collection Development about Pioneer Girl Perspectives, and I will when I get back to work because, like you, I'm at home now. <laughs> Well,
1: I would be interested to know if they're going to do it. but um, I will. I, I will, and
2: I can send you an email. I'll find out about it.
1: Well, great. And I will put that out once I get an answer.
2: Um, okay. So uh, have you
1: done any cool Laura fan stuff besides, you know, doing that research you described, which sounds beyond cool when you were doing the series?
2: It, it was very cool. I have not. I have not visited any of the sites. It's, it's on my bucket list. I would love to go to Missouri. I would love to go to South Dakota. Um, I would love to visit some of the places that Laura lived, but I have not done so. I have not alas.
1: Well, and I, I, and
2: I, can... I have a collection of the books. I also uh, another book that I narrated a number of years ago now is "A Little House Sampler," which is a collection oh, yeah. of writings and essays. I narrated that for NLS. So oh, see, that, that was, was another not in the non-fiction. Article. Hmm?
1: That was not in the article. The Little House Sampler is really, really cool. It is edited it by is. Bill
2: Anderson. It and is. It is. And again really
1: cool.
2: again for sighted fans it has a lot of lovely photographs in it.
1: Yes. Well that's so. exciting. I didn't I the article I read did not say you'd done that one too. Yay.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, I did that one. I also narrated and I can't remember the name of it. I I should have looked it up, but I narrated one of the biographies of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Um I don't think I narrated the one by the fellow who who hypothesized that Rose wrote all her books and that she didn't do very much. I don't yeah, think I that's narrated that one.
1: That's I didn't uh, care to for that The in the Wallhouse by William Hope. Yes. Um yes. Did you maybe do "Becoming" Laura Ingalls Wilder by John
2: Miller? Uh I don't think so. That, but you know, I've narrated over nine hundred books, so I, I don't. I'm at my computer now. Let me look that up while we chat. Ask me another question <laughs> while I look it up.
1: Okay. Um. Uh. Have Have, have you um have you cooked anything out of a little house cookbook in terms of doing cool stuff? Or,
2: uh, no, do do I, not a lot, but I did one time make the apples and onions um, recipe, you know, where you, where you fry up apples and onions together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did one time when we had a big snowstorm, I did try the uh, maple sugar candy, snow candy, yeah, I didn't it didn't come out very well. I think it probably wasn't cold enough where I lived and the, the the maple syrup just kind of went down into the snow and didn't really harden into a hard candy. But yeah, it it is something
1: that takes some practice. There are lots of people who have uh unfortunate experiences trying it the first time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Hang on mm-hmm. one second. I have found no. Hang on. Where is it? MLS catalog? Oh, here it is. Search results. MLS catalog. Let me look. Oh well, that's it's I, I don't remember if I narrated Becoming Laura Engels Wilder.
0: Okay.
1: Oh, that's all right. It was just a shot in the dark. Uh, Mm -hmm. Do you get um, much uh, negative reaction if you talk about being a Laura fan in, you know, that kind of East Coast section of the country? Or do you find just positive reactions when you say, you know, like you'd read the Little House book?
2: Um, I mostly get positive remarks, but then... As as a woman of a certain age, most of the people that I encounter are not millennials and therefore not um, haven't – how do I put this gently? They haven't been bitten by the political correctness bug. Um, yes. You know, not that I, I – I mean, I, I'm all for uh, equality and – fairness and and you know i'm i'm all for me too and all the rest i'm not saying that at all i'm just saying that i have a strong belief in historical context and i think that sometimes 21st century humans lose sight of the fact that the world was very different in the 1970s, I mean, in the 1870s and 80s, and that, the, that we cannot expect uh, 21st century enlightenment from 19th century humans, that, when, uh, that the world was different and uh, people's perspectives were different.
1: Uh, one of my favorite examples of that is uh, there is uh, there was a guy who wanted to change the Shakespeare plays, and this was like I
0: mean, right.
1: 1800s right. Yes. or something, and he wanted yes. to change everywhere it said converse, uh, which at the time had a slang meaning of have sex, to intercourse, which at mm-hmm. the time didn't, and mm-hmm. that's just the kind of thing that that comes up when you're dealing with with, uh, old stuff. And we sometimes could be making it worse if you change it to future people.
2: Right, right. Well, and I, I also personally, as a lifelong Laura fan, was surprised and I have to say not a little disturbed when there was a flurry of articles about Laura Ingalls Wilder recently, a few years ago, Um, you know, suggesting that the books are racist and that they were anti-Native American. And again, in terms of historical perspective, what I found really interesting is that when I read Little House on the Prairie as like a nine or ten-year-old, I remember very vividly that I thought, Ma, was prejudiced, because Ma thought the Indians smelled and she was afraid of them and she, they, they frightened her and she didn't want to have anything to do with them and she didn't want them in her house, blah, blah, blah. But I vividly remembered the, the scene where the line of Indian ponies is going by and Laura makes eye contact with a little baby papoose that's, that's wrapped, you know, swaddled on its mother's back and that she made a connection with that child, and that she saw the, their shared humanity. And I thought, Laura wasn't racist. Laura wasn't racist at all. Um, maybe her mother was, out of fear and whatnot. But even Pa saw that, well, you know, we are stealing their land. And he was not unaware of the inequities of the westward expansion. And it was a different world then. And to hold people from 200 years ago to our current standards of uh, moral behavior is, I don't think, helpful. We can say we would not look at it that way, but you can't say that they were, were horrible for being a product of their times. Yes. And, end, of, um, end of speech. End of speech. <laughs> and I looked it up, and I did indeed narrate Becoming Laura Ingalls Wilder.
1: Well, that is really cool. Well, you did even more cool Laura books than I knew when I I <laughs> to
2: come up. Yes, uh, uh the the Library of Congress listing says it was 11 hours and 34 minutes of listening. So,
1: that that sounds about right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well. Um now I I had asked you uh about this before, but did, were you able to find a little something that you could do, Just since we can't do the Laura books, to give an idea of what you sound like when you narrate?
2: Yes, absolutely, because one of the other books, I, I've narrated a lot of children's books because, uh, well, for a while there in the late 80s and early 90s, that was my sort of specialty, And one of the other children's books that I narrated was A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett, which is copyright 1905, so that is safely in the public domain. Yes. And I would like to read just a little section. For those who don't know the book, it's about a little British girl who um, is, uh, her father dies right near the beginning of the book, and she is stuck as a, an impoverished student at Miss Minchin's Academy. And Miss Minchin is kind of like the Wicked Witch of the West. She's a a, a very mean, mean headmistress. And uh, Sarah, the little girl's name, is treated like a little servant, and she ends up sleeping in an attic, and she goes through all kinds of travails, and as punishment, she is deprived food And uh, after having been sent to bed and told that she will have no supper and no breakfast and no nothing tomorrow, and she falls asleep, and unbeknownst to her, the gentleman next door has been keeping an eye on her. The gentleman next door was a friend of her dead father's, and he sends his servant, and while she is asleep in her little garret, the servant comes in and transforms everything and I'm just going to read a little section of what happens when she wakes up. At first, she did not open her eyes. She felt too sleepy and, curiously enough, too warm and comfortable. She was so warm and comfortable, indeed, that she did not believe she was really awake. She never was as warm and cozy as this, except in some lovely vision. What a nice dream! she murmured. I feel quite warm. I don't want to wake up. Of course it was a dream. She felt as if warm, delightful bedclothes were heaped upon her. She could actually feel blankets, and when she put out her hand, it touched something exactly like a satin-covered Eiderdown quilt. She must not awaken from this delight. She must be quite still and make it last but she could not even though she kept her eyes closed tightly she could not something was forcing her to awaken something in the room it was a sense of light and a sound the sound of a crackling roaring little fire oh I am awakening she said mournfully I can't help it I can't. Her eyes opened in spite of herself, and then she actually smiled. For what she saw, she had never seen in the attic before and knew she never should see. Oh, I haven't awakened, she whispered, daring to rise on her elbow and look all about her. I am dreaming yet. She knew it must be a dream. For if she were awake, such things could not, could not be. And then she wakes up and the room is transformed and there are rugs and a fire and a little brass kettle. And and it's the beginning of the happy ending.
1: Well, that is just beautiful. I can see why they, they let you do the books. Because I just... Uh, unfortunately, what this has done is made me just sick. I don't qualify for these because I would love to hear <laughs> you do. Uh,
2: well, I'm but sorry I, about that, but
1: but I should take that as as a good thing. I'm glad that I don't. Um, mm-hmm.
2: But I'm sorry
1: I can't hear yours because it sounds like you did a great job, uh, and we are actually out of time.
2: Well, so there we I are. just it's been a thank pleasure you. talking with you.
1: Thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us all about your work with Laura's books. And again, if you know someone who's having a problem reading, make sure they know about the National Library Service.
2: Absolutely. They can call 1-888-NLS-READ.
1: Thank you. Uh, and with that, I am going to uh, put Laura back in the green room just long enough for us to say, or uh, for me to say, bright in the corner where you are. And remember to check back for more episodes because we're going to be doing a lot while we're all shut up. Thanks. <laughs>